concentrate our time and look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. And uh, we have entitled this sermon, Servants of Christ. And believe it or not, this is my second time actually preaching through this passage. Uh, because the first time uh, we, we looked at this passage in the context of uh, being servants, not celebrities. Uh, so the same context applies Uh, But certainly my aim is to dive a little bit deeper as we look at this passage, not so much in a topical manner, but as it relates to the context involved. Uh, Paul the Apostle is setting forward in redeeming the Corinthians from the conflict that they uh, found themselves and restoring them to like-mindedness and fellowship. But he wants them to see themselves as believers identified in Christ, as we talked about last time. But also he wants them to see the apostles and those in whom they have hidden themselves in and have made factions. He wants them to see the fellow apostles as servants. And so Paul the apostle begins to launch out into this again, all tied to what is said in chapter one, because the conflict is being addressed at various points. And all the effects of that conflict is also uh, what Paul had in view. So we'll read very briefly verses 1 to 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 just to set our context. And it reads in verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ as, and, and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact... I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look to this text, Paul, after having established our identity in Christ and all of us, As partakers of God's gift to us in Christ, he puts us in a place where we are of equal capacity. So he levels the ground uh, with respect to those who are serving and those who are being of service. And he places us as all servants of Christ. But first he begins with the apostles as being servants of Christ. And later uh, within the framework of our text, you'll see where that needs to be defended because encroaching into the life of the church at this point are not only factions, but some will take advantage that the fact of those factions had already begun and label themselves as super apostles. And you'll see that Paul has to contend against them throughout the remainder of the epistle in many different areas. But here he is dealing with the fallout And trying to remedy the fact that no one is to hide in another and no one is to become arrogant and jealous and ambitious toward one another because that is not what Christ meant when he established his church. It's not what he desired for men and it's not why he had established the apostles uh, to be the forerunners of uh, what would then be the modern church at large today. 
So in an equal capacity, Paul establishes our identity in Christ and he labels us all as partakers of God's gifts. And even as such, he then deals with how men must regard, as I've said, he and other apostles as servants, that we must regard each other, mutually speaking, as servants. It is how we are to be considered. It is how Paul wanted the Corinthians to consider himself and to consider Apollos and Peter. And yet Christ is Lord of all. And yet Christ also came to serve and not to be served at his first advent. So we understand that Paul is setting forward for us uh, the principle that we are all servants of Christ and servants in Christ. It is how we are to be considered. That's what Paul means when he says in verse one, let a man regard us in this manner. It's not that you want to disregard and ignore the work of God's servants or disregard and ignore the work of the apostles as we look to our context. But what he's saying is, if you are to regard us, you must regard us the proper way. You must regard us the way that God would have you esteem us and not esteem us based on some standard that you have created. He doesn't want the Corinthians, nor should we want one another, nor should I want this for you. But he doesn't want them to esteem each other as faction leaders. He doesn't want them to esteem each other as rock stars, as heroes, but only as servants, as servants. And even more as stewards, because if you esteem someone as a servant, you will then look at what are they responsible for. A steward sets a servant in their proper context where you do not disregard the servant because the servant is simply a caretaker. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want you to regard us as caretakers, as stewards. Well, a steward of what? A steward of the mysteries of God. Disclosing to you that which was once concealed and now revealed. And our minds go to that passage in Timothy when we begin to flesh out the mystery of godliness as it has been laid out concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. But Paul says regard us as stewards, as caretakers, as those who are entrusted with a message and entrusted with the people to whom we are giving that message. And so therefore we do not have time upon this earth to be regarded as more than stewards because we represent someone who is above us. So they are to be considered as caretakers. And so you see, even as you compare what Paul says in these first couple of verses to what has already transpired, you see where the great disconnect is. You see that they had began to elevate these men and they had begun to worship them as such and hide in them and entrust in them salvation and a mediatorial role as such that these men were the means through which uh, one would find their hope and their ultimate grace. And so Paul goes right to it and says that is not so. That is not how we ought to regard one another. And so Paul is wanting them himself included, to be considered as stewards, as those in whom the message and the proclamation is entrusted. And so they are serving in that caretaker role. Our minds go to the parables of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. 
When in many settings in those parables, he's talking about our role as stewards. He's talking to his disciples about how they ought to conduct themselves as those who are entrusted with a message. They are not the source of that message, but they are certainly pointing to the source of that message. And therefore, they are ultimately responsible for what they convey to the people. But I would say that one must have a certain self-regard with respect to how they carry themselves in the proclamation of God's truth. Because men don't simply arrive to this place as a steward because they are worshipped by many. You cannot arrive to the place of telling other people to regard you as a servant of Christ if you do not see yourself as a servant of Christ. And so in the time in which you and I find ourselves... So many do not view themselves as servants of Christ. They view themselves as kings, as rulers over the people. And Paul has something for them that he will say in comparison to how the apostles actually lived when we get down to verse 8, when he begins to deal with them specifically. Because their perspective is that they are already ruling and reigning. And so that does not change. Their offspring are still here. Those who believe that they are still kings reigning over God's church as though they themselves are God's. So you cannot say simultaneously that you are a steward and yet receive the worship of the people. You cannot drive and instigate factions among the people and then say you are entrusted and a steward and caretaker of the mysteries of God. It is the steward and caretaker's responsibility to deflect praise away from himself at all times. And so that is what Paul is doing, and he's demonstrating it. What I love about Paul is that when he gives a solution, he demonstrates in himself what the solution looks like. And so he's doing that here. He's saying, I'm going to show you what it looks like to serve you as a caretaker. I'm going to define it for you, and I'm going to demonstrate it so that there will be no misunderstanding as to why my name should not be set up in a faction. So, so many today need to be rebuked for setting up factions. They don't need to be praised for it. They don't need to be honored and rewarded for it. They need to be rebuked for it. But men do not arrive to this place because they're worshipped. You can't get here from being worshipped by others. Instead, they are found to be trustworthy. That's what Paul says. Paul says it is that they must be trustworthy. It is a requirement. And so he provides distinction between himself and the caricature of himself as put forward by the Corinthians, but also his caricature of the false teachers who seek to infiltrate the church in Corinth and those who label themselves as super apostles. He says in verse two, in this case, it's not enough that we're just regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. But in this case, moreover, it is required. There's a requirement that we're met with. There is a standard objectively that you can measure to see if someone is truly a steward. It says that one is uh, that one be found trustworthy, one be found trustworthy. And so the beck and call of their life must be on the basis of reliability, reliability. And that reliability is tied to the mysteries of God. It's not tied to some. Uh, subjective feeling on what you feel like 
the man of God ought to serve at your beck and call. It is that they must be reliable in the area of living out and disclosing the mysteries of God. And the apostles were the forerunners of providing that example. And so this is essentially to be faithful to Christ. A lot of talk about that, but not a lot of the doing in the modern time in which we find ourselves. But it is required, he says, that the caretaker, the steward, must be faithful to Christ. He must be reliable to Christ and to God. He must demonstrate a certain stability within himself with respect to handling God's affairs and God's business. It should not be this up and down that relates to the life of those who are simply hirelings. But it should be this steadfastness, this stability, this faithfulness, this reliability that is marked by those who are stewards. A caretaker, it can be said, is careful. A caretaker is careful. Careful holding the treasure of God's mystery revealed. And thus giving it to the people, but also careful to make sure it is protected in its receiving and in its giving. And so Paul says that this carefulness also extends to the person. It extends to the conscience. It extends to the fact that in no way can we exercise self-worship or hero worship. It is no way that we can deflect praise away from the one who revealed the mystery to us. We cannot take for ourselves praise in an instant. We have to simply see to it that God himself is praised. That is what we're protecting. That is what the apostles protected. The praise of God. Praise be to God in his name alone. So that is the stewardship that we're entrusted with. It's not the legacy of some institution. It's not the, uh, the, the idea of the legacy of proclamation and preaching. It is that you are protecting the mysteries of God and all that that entails. And you are ensuring its sound delivery. You are ensuring its effectiveness. You do not create its effectiveness, but you're ensuring that it's effective in the sense that you proclaim the full counsel and you do not stand in its way at any turn. So he says all of this related to stewardship. They must be trustworthy. They must be trustworthy. And so he says then in verse three that there are a couple of arenas in which this trustworthiness is found. He says, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. Paul didn't mind the scrutiny. He didn't mind the scrutiny. But what he was saying is the scrutiny ought to be in step related to directly in relationship with the mysteries of God. If you're going to examine me and scrutinize me, do so related to the divine mysteries of God that have been disclosed. Do so according to the word of God itself. Do so according to Christ in whom I find my absolute existence and being. And so he says, it is a small thing that I may be examined by you. Well, so many here already fall off the rails of being stewards because they don't want to be examined by the people. They consider it a big deal when people start to examine them. But Paul said, I consider it a small thing. I consider it a small thing for the human courts to come and examine me, Paul says. These are small things. Well, why can he say that? He can say that because he has a liberated conscience. He has a liberated conscience. His conscience is free. 
And so whatever judgment he had to find himself in front of, whatever scrutiny he had to find himself in front of, he was not up for the inspection of questioning his own motives in the negative sense because he knew before God his motives were plain. And we'll talk about this more because our motives will all be disclosed before God on that great day. Our motives. So then, as we back up just a little bit, Paul is going to deal with the fact that all of this arrives at the point where we have no occasion to boast in men or to receive the boast of men. Because to do so would strike against all trustworthiness. You don't trust so many this hour because they're so busy worshiping each other. So therefore, they're not trustworthy because their ministries, quote unquote, are farmed out to the highest bidder. And so you can't trust that. There's nothing there to trust. There's nothing to hold fast to when it's not simply anchored to God's word and his person and his plans and his objectives. You have nothing lasting that you can grasp and say that is a trustworthy work. We're establishing a foundation on something that will not change. If I were going with all the trends and all the programs and all the social issues and whatever it was that you wanted to see and hear, well, then that's not trustworthy. It may draw a crowd, but it's not trustworthy because, as I've said, Paul ties the stewardship that we have not to the spirit of the age, not to preference, but he ties it to the mysteries of God. Well, then you have to ask yourself, well, what is the mystery of God? And shouldn't I then know what the mysteries of God are so that I can make sure that this work is a trustworthy work? It has been turned upside down. So many are saying, I trust so-and-so because of things that are untrustworthy. But it is not based on some standard that man imposes upon one another. That is what Paul is saying. Because there would be no chapter 4 if we accepted the model of chapter 1. If we want it trustworthy to be simply the idea that we can line up behind individuals and ascribe to them whatever we want and then rally around that caricature that we created, well, then there's no, re no reason to co correct anything. But rather, this is trustworthiness before others as we handle the things of God. It is here that we say we must be careful. We must be careful. It's never that we must be careful in drawing out the error that people are committing and exposing it. There is a carefulness in that, but we must do it. But in the handling of God's things, it is that we must be careful. So we can't have this apologetic, this evangelistic carefulness that we're calling for and yet handle God's administration as though it doesn't matter. It is in this area that the steward, the servant of Christ, must be found trustworthy. Do you know why so many are not trustworthy? It's because they do not see themselves as stewards of Christ. So then why do you see them as stewards of Christ if they do not operate as stewards of Christ, as servants of Christ, as caretakers of the mystery? We must deal with his administration. I'll say it this way. We must deal with his dispensation in a very careful 
and scrutinizing manner ourselves. Because when you're able to deal with God's uh, truth in a scrutinizing way, you don't mind being scrutinized. You don't mind being scrutinized. In verse 3, Paul is so different than the modern evangelical mindset. He's so different than the papacy mindset. He's so different than all the other mindsets of the world. And he's different in this way. Paul did not mind that God's men were scrutinized. He did not mind that. That was not his issue in verse 3. He did not consider it a big deal that he would be carefully watched and examined. He did not consider that a big deal. But instead... What he desired was for the Corinthians to examine him the proper way. If you're going to scrutinize me, do not bring to me some subjective standard. Do not bring to me some outward worldly sense in which I must conform. Paul wants to be examined by how he is handling the mysteries of God. Is he handling that administration the right way? He says, examine me that way. Don't put on me your preferences. Don't put on me some philosophical, academic expectation. Put upon me the fact that my handling, the administration and dispensation, the way that God has called me to. He desired for the Corinthians to examine him that way. He did not want to be the object of their worship, nor did he want to be the object of their slander. He did not want them to exalt him. Based on some worldly standard, and he did not want them to slander him based on some worldly standard. Instead, Paul was speaking to them. Listen to this, because this is very important. Paul was speaking to them as a man who was free from men. He was a man who was free from men since he held a clear conscience. This is not erudite. This is an arrogance. This is I am free. I'm free before all men because my motives are simply plain before you. I'm simply setting forward what God has disclosed and established in his word in every setting in which I find myself. And so Paul says, I'm not doing that for the cameras. I'm not doing that to impress you. I'm not doing that so that you can worship me. And I'm not in competition with anybody else. What Paul is saying is, I'm doing this because I'm free. God has called me to this and this is my life's work. To carry forward the dispensation of his plan and to disclose the full counsel of his will to all people in my hearing. He did not need their affirmation. They were giving him an affirmation that was wicked. He did not need the Corinthians affirmation as a means to continue the work. He didn't need their affirmation. It was certainly to Paul an encouragement to be blessed by the fellow believers. We went through Romans 16. I'm not saying he didn't need their encouragement. I'm saying he didn't need them to pat him on his head and say, good job, keep going. He simply needed to be faithful. He needed to be reliable to demonstrate to them that he, in fact, was a steward. He was showing them, show and prove, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a philosophical all-star. I am simply an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says. And everyone who comes after me ought to be in step with this is the manner and mode with which we operate. I say that it applies to everyone who comes after because the time in which the ultimate work will be scrutinized, Paul points to the end times. And so this stands for the entire church age to which Paul found himself in the early part of it. And we are in the latter stages of it. 
But he did not mind the scrutinizing. He didn't mind the fact that they put a certain scrutiny to what he was doing. As long as that scrutiny met with the standard of God's word. Instead, what Paul knew is what you and I know, I believe, and what you and I follow. He knew that the ultimate examiner was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That he is the ultimate examiner. He is judge, jury, and executioner. He is the one who provides the audit and the one who makes decisions based on what he has found. So he is the chief examiner. He knew that. And he knew that a man with a liberated conscience, a man with a liberated conscience had nothing to fear before Christ himself. And had nothing to fear before God's people. Nothing to fear before God's people. He says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. But listen, Paul also says that's not enough because so many say, well, I haven't done anything wrong. So I'm acquitted. I, I, I'm not aware of any infraction that I've committed against God's people. I don't recall as though there's a, stat, a statue of limitations uh, against wickedness and somehow they can be absolved from it just as time passes by. Paul is saying, I'm not conscious of nothing against myself, but listen, by this, I'm not acquitted. There's nothing apparent that I can think of that would cast me down in the eyes of the people. But ultimately, I stand before God who examines me. He is the one who will give me a full acquittal. And I believe that this is a great encouragement in the area of which people may find themselves when their motives are in question, when they have right motives. It's that oftentimes you cannot convince people that what you're doing is for their benefit. And oftentimes, no matter what you do, they will question if you're really for their benefit. And from where you stand and from where you're seated, you truly believe I am doing what is to their benefit. I'm speaking mutually. I'm speaking in the area of all things related to our day to day Christian living. But it's not that we simply scrutinize on a level of I'm doing what is the best interest for you. Because we are not kings. Your conscience is not a slave to my conscience. Your conscience ought to be liberated in Christ. So Paul says ultimately where we all find our fellowship, where we all find our agreement is knowing that the chief examiner is the Lord. And so we stand before him. You and I can only test and judge our motives so far. And we can get pretty close to understanding how we operate because we do know ourselves rightly if we're in Christ. But ultimately, Christ will disclose even those blind spots that you and I may have. And so he says, I am not by my own conscience acquitted. I would say that there... So many sermons today would already be preached from one to three and then the benediction because so many do not want to go to the point of it's not enough for me to just think that I haven't wronged someone or something related to God's will. But instead, I have to look to God's scrutinizing judgment of me, both in the present hour and at the last day. I have to serve and minister in light of that. 
And so when you're serving and ministering in that light, you do not have the freedom to attack what God has established. And so there Paul makes it very plain. Even more, Paul, Paul also gave this as a solution. And the solution that he gave it to and gave it for was to prevent us as we look to how this applies for us with respect to the Corinthians. Paul also gave this as, a, as the solution to prevent us from going into presumptuous judgment, presumptuous judgment. What one might call nitpicking and not only just nitpicking, but making judgments before things play out. You'll notice in verse five, as we look to that next, Paul points out both the negative and positive aspects of passive judgment. He connects it to what he says about the conscience. But look at verse five. He says, therefore. So here's the connector. Because he's saying, let's wait for the day on many things upon which God will examine him, uh, examine his church and his people and their motives and disclose them. But look at this. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes. There is a patience. There's a patience and even scrutiny when we're doing it the way that God demands, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So what Paul is saying here is that the Corinthians, first of all, were guilty of presumptuous judgment. And they're going to be guilty of it just to show you throughout this letter at most points throughout the letter. Throughout this epistle, the first way in which they're guilty of presumptuous judgment is that they create caricatures of the men and divorce those men from the will of God and exalt them separately from how they ought to function in the body of Christ. And then they create... Uh, presumptuous judgments with respect to partiality amongst each other. And then they create uh, presumptuous judgments by turning on Paul when he won't receive them and their factions and begin to slander and mislabel him. And then they create presumptuous judgment when they begin to receive the super apostles. And they also do so in the area of the gifts. They also do so in the area of desecrating the Lord's table. It's all presumptuous judgments. In the area based solely on how they feel, passing judgment on things before the time in many different areas. But listen, the problem was not that they judge men in their motives. The problem was that they judge men in their motives improperly. They didn't let things play out. Paul is giving them answers to questions. This is how you know that they were presumptuous in their judgment. Paul is giving them answers to questions they haven't asked. They had already made their judgments. And so Paul is saying, I need to correct your thinking because you're coming to conclusions about me without coming to me and asking me what those conclusions are. And so I'm just going to give them to you. And so what Paul says is you're guilty of presumptuous judgment. You're passing judgment before the time. Later in this epistle, they will, as I said, wrongly judge Paul and they'll wrongly slander him. Right after they wrongly tried to worship him. So it is wrong to do both. In this context, then, 
He's calling upon the Corinthians to judge rightly. But listen, in the absence of clear evidence, in the absence of clarity, we must await the Lord's judgment upon them as time passes. Time is a great ally because it leads to eternity. And in eternity, all things will be in their proper place. Time vindicates the true, but it also condemns the false. It vindicates the true and condemns the false. Paul doesn't say, do not judge at all, just as Jesus did not say that. What Paul is saying is there are some things that will be ultimately revealed on the final stage of God's judgment against all things. But in this, I don't want you to forget what the context is. Paul is clear that he himself and all servants of of Christ are examined by God. And I'll tell you even more. Paul operated that way. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to truly have faith that that will be the case. So many say and can wax eloquent about the end times and what will happen on the great day of the Lord. But their lives don't look like they're awaiting that time. Their ministries don't look like it will ultimately be scrutinized by God himself. So the two have to be related together. But I'll also tell you that this isn't just a man to his ministry. This is a man in the service of other believers. It is vital that you must have a clear conscience. You must have a clear conscience. Do you see how important it is not only to have a clear conscience, but a clear conscience renders clear testimony. Clear testimony. When your conscience is clear, your testimony about the one who holds the mysteries are clear. It is necessary to have a conscience only bound to Christ. One that is vindicated and acquitted by him alone. Vindicated and acquitted by him alone. And listen, men cannot speak of being servants of Christ if they do not minister in light of a clear conscience examined by God. If they do not minister in light of a clear conscience examined by God, they cannot speak of being his servants. So Paul then went to what matters most in the eyes of God. I have said this. I've said this even as we have studied uh, and read the Old Testament. It is this principle and it is probably the most important principle that I believe has been hidden in the time in which we found ourselves. Hidden by those who do not want you to recognize it. God cares about the motives. He cares about your motives. He cares about motive. If he is to examine, motive is certainly a part of the examination. I mean, that is true even in our modern justice system. That motive and intent factor in to whatever the sentence or acquittal is with respect to a given situation. Motive, intent. Those are words that Paul uses. Because look at what he says. Wait until the Lord comes. So there's a time stamp to this. With certain judgments, there are things that we do not know. Things hidden from us that will be revealed. People that you and I may have affirmed. And yet the time will reveal who they really are. 
and it may not be revealed in the time to many that we expect things uh, to be revealed. But God will bring all things to light, even the things that are hidden, hidden in the darkness. And if something is hidden in the darkness, it does not want to be found. I believe that darkness here, it certainly is related to the analogy of light and darkness. But I do believe that light stands here for very much the full disclosure of God's testimony and truth. I believe darkness here is used for the deception. That hour upon which one is blind and cannot see. The same cloak of darkness that was used to arrest our Lord uh, who was innocent of all things. But it will be those things hidden in darkness. And then he goes on further. He doesn't only say that the light will will reveal those things. But he says that that day when the Lord comes will disclose the motives, the motives of men's hearts. The motives of men's hearts. It is the testing of motives. That is what matters most in the eyes of God. All things matter, but the motives are at the forefront of what Paul is saying. I'm saying that because motives separate truly the true from the false. We see how it ravaged the people of Israel during the time of Christ. That people were engaged in ritual and ceremony, but their motives were not right. We understand the prophets. How the prophets condemn the people for praising with their mouths and their lips, but their what? Their hearts were far from God. Their motives were far from God. Their intent. We see when God surveys the land and he's about to bring forward the global flood to extinguish everyone except Noah and his family. He sees that what? The thoughts, the intentions, the motives of man are evil and evil continually. He cares about motives. Sometimes we may think we can see motives. We can't. Not always. And really the time in which you can see motives are to God's true shepherds who are always disclosing motives. I believe that Paul the apostle always disclosed his motives. Jesus the Christ always said, I'm doing this and here's why. The apostles say, we're doing this, and here's why we're doing it. His true shepherds, it should stand to reason, do things and say, here's why. The Bible says to do it this way. The Bible commands this. The Bible establishes this. But sometimes you and I, we think we can see motives. We think we can. But we have to be honest, we may also misappropriate motives. We may also place motives... That are on a person or people that are not the true motives. We may also romanticize individuals and say they stand for this, this and this when really they don't. Their motives are something completely different from what we have ascribed to them. But I'll tell you that God does not do this ever. God knows the motives of men's hearts and he knows them down to the science of it. He knows why each person does what they do, specifically and especially with respect to rendering the things in his name. He knows the motives of his true servants. 
He knows the motives of those who are the pretenders. And what Paul is saying is, Paul is trying to convince the Corinthians that his motives agree with the Lord. He's telling them, in the area of my conscience, I'm doing that which is in agreement with God. I found nothing wrong concerning with what I'm doing. But that's not enough. God is going to examine me personally and disclose what I've done, how I've done it, and if it agrees with his will. He's going to disclose it. But he knows the motives. He knows the motives. He knows the motives of those who are the pretenders. I'll tell you that in this area, this is where the greatest deceptions often take place. In the area of motives. This is where Satan often deceives. In the area of people being able to hide their motives. But God would not have it so among his true people. Because Paul says that you must be found trustworthy. While a trustworthy person is disclosing their motives. Demonstrating their motives. Up front with their motives. They don't have a secret ulterior motive and agenda that they're trying to carry out at your expense. But in this, Paul also told the Corinthians that there's going to be a time. When God specifically discloses these motives, we ought not then judge before he is ready to pass his own judgment. Because God's disclosure is full disclosure. Now, as Jude says, sometimes in summarizing and paraphrasing, men's sins are evident to all. And then some are not evident to all, but they will be met with those sins in the judgment. The full weight of the sins they committed will be waiting for them when it is time for the full judgment to be standing in their face before them. But it does say with wisdom to wait for that time to come, to wait for that time to come. Not everything will be disclosed right away. You may identify one key player and there are 50. You may identify 50 and there are 100. You may identify a hundred and you forgot the one who started it all. But my point is, in this full disclosure, we opt for the time of full disclosure. Now, it doesn't say don't disclose anything. Because elsewhere in Ephesians 4, Paul says that our work, our business, is to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. But at no point is he saying, should you believe you have exposed it all. You and I cannot do that. Only God can do that. And it is God who will do that. I have faith that he will do that. And I'll tell you, I believe that that is also tied to the proclamation of the mysteries of God. That scripture itself, the greatest weapon in the greatest theater of war, is what really discloses everything. And the appearing of Christ is also the thing, the only thing that stands above uh, our proclamation itself. Because it leads to that. Our gathering leads to his coming. Our, our testifying of his word, it leads to the return, the sure return of Christ. So he says to wait for that time to come. We await the great day in which everyone's true motives will be revealed. Everyone's true motives will be revealed. You and I can see some things. We can see certain things. We can see many things. Paul is not asking us to pretend not to see. 
He's saying if they are untrustworthy, their motives are going to be revealed at the last day. He's saying you can bet the house on it, so to speak. The true servants of Christ, however, have nothing to fear if our motives are aligned to his will. We have nothing to fear, be it the hostility from men who impugn our motives, be it from those who question our motives. We have nothing to fear if our motives are aligned to his will. It is why it is so important to be aligned to his will and his word. But this is not so for those who are who are not his. The motives of men's hearts separates the true servants from the hirelings. I believe that this is by the Holy Spirit placed with a certain accuracy, a definite accuracy because of what will follow this text. As we have said before, as Paul aimed to remedy this conflict that pressed the church in chapter one, he wrote to them the true praise we await is the praise from God. That's the praise we're awaiting, not men, not men, because, again, that goes to motives. It's going to look differently if I do what I do for man's approval. But it will also look differently if I'm doing what I'm doing for God's approval. We must be careful in this area because it is an area in which we are engaging in spiritual warfare. The disclosure of motives. And I say you must be careful because listen to this. We can only see the motives that are disclosed to us. There are times where we can only see the motives that are disclosed to us. And if one is untrustworthy, and if Satan is masquerading as an angel of light, and his, his servants are masquerading as ministers of righteousness, we have to be careful in the sense that in the area of motives, one can be deceived. One can be deceived. We can see the motives that individuals disclose. Those who are true before God are disclosing true motives. And by that, I mean, they're not just saying I'm sincere. They're showing you God's word as the basis upon which every action is taken. Every thought is rendered. You are not a part of some cult. You are not a part of some faction. You are in step with the will of God in as much as the full disclosure of God's will is being given to you. And the justification for every action is the word of God alone. That is the motive of the heart. That is the only motive of the heart that's welcome. But listen, although you and I may in this area at times, at times, I'm not saying often, I'm not saying as a pattern of the life, but at times we don't see all the motives in play. We're not omniscient. We're not, I'm not present, but God can see it all. Because here, Paul says the motives of the heart, the centerpiece and the seat of the affections are laid bare before God at all times, at all times. It is God who will ultimately disclose not only what men do, but why we do what we do. Why? Why do you do this? 
It is then God who will ultimately bring that which is done in darkness to light. And I would say that we must take great comfort in this. We must take great comfort in this. For all of our motives will meet with his perfect justice and his perfect mercy. He says, as we close today, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Motives. I'm giving you my motive. I have figuratively applied this to us, not so that you can raise up factions. He's saying, I made myself and Apollos examples for your sakes. This is for you. Do you want to know what the purpose is? Well, the purpose goes to my motives. The purpose is so that in us, learning from what I've disclosed to you here, you learn not to exceed what is written. I don't want you to go beyond the text. I don't want you to find your identity in all these other things that do not come from the word of God. Oh, and here's the other purpose. Full disclosure. So that no one of you will become arrogant. I don't want to pit you against one another in behalf of one against the other. I don't want to tear down your factions and then subtly reintroduce arrogance among you. Division. I don't want you to be divided. And then somehow a couple times a year I'm your hero. I don't want to insert problems into your life and then propose some pragmatic and fleshly means of resolving your issues. Paul says, I don't want you to become arrogant. I want you to be humble. I want you to not regard us as superior. I want you to regard God as superior. I want you to look at the superiority of his word in all things. Paul is saying, don't even take what I'm saying for granted. Scrutinize it with what is written. I believe we can find great comfort in that. Uh, the next time we will examine uh, the budding war that stems from those who are coming and trying to establish themselves as rulers and kings, human rulers and kings over the church. Let's pray.